huge fan of the horror comedy An American Werewolf in London. I was more than a little excited to get the opportunity to interview one of its stars, Jenny Agata, some years ago in a London hotel room. Jenny was holding interviews for the special edition release of American Werewolf, and I was lucky enough to snag myself a place and a good half an hour with Jenny. Jenny Agata has the sort of film career most people can only dream of, with credits including Logan's Run, The Railway Children, the hugely controversial Walkabout, and even appearances in the MCU in Avengers and Captain America the Winter Soldier. Her TV credits are just as impressive, with appearances in much-loved shows such as Magnum P.I., Murder, She Wrote, The Equalizer, Red Dwarf, and most recently as Sister Julianne in Call the Midwife. Jenny talked openly with me about American Wealth in London, about the director John Landis, who also directed Michael Jackson's Thriller video, her controversial movie Walkabout, which was previously banned, and what it was like filming a sex scene with co-star David Norton when David had a crush on her at the time. Jenny opens up on American Wealth in London like she's never done before. Jenny... John Landis is one of my all-time favourite directors. Being a huge Michael Jackson fan as I am, and him having directed Thriller, the greatest music video of all time, I'd love to know what he what he's like as a director to work for. Um, he's, he's a terrific actor, for an actor. Whatever. Um, he brings a huge amount of energy to a film set. Films to make film that is about you know, paint the boring is watching paint dry. Um, right. She normally has little tiny bits of films to go off, you're waiting, you're mind, you come back, the energy dies, and you hope that you can find something that keeps it going. Great scene. Um, John has never let that happen. I mean, he's constantly, constantly telling stories. You had to remain on set because you're just talking and he's doing things and talking about the scenes from that stuff, you're telling jokes. So it just it has an extraordinary flow to it, very high energy. So I think that's always apparent, uh, and, and it helps you enormously in that because it keeps you keeps you entertained. And and also I think he has very good. He both you know he's, he he wrote an American film, and he's very good at recognizing people and the way they are and the, you know what's real, what's not real, with the act, what's real, what's not real. And you feel very secure that he's actually going to make choices. That makes sense for a character and not leave you with egg on your face, looking rather strange. And I, he does you know, odd things like he would um, do a take and then he'll immediately go on and not cut and start again, which is again when things kind of slide because you stop and start again. You'll just go, okay, go in. Just, just do that moment. So you come right in and do it. Um, and often, you know, because it's at the moment it has a completely different uh, reaction to it, which he'll use. Uh, that leads me on to another question about John Landis. Does he let his actors improvise their lines during filming, as some uh, some directors do? I think that it's, uh, it was a fairly worked script, actually, American Werewolf. But it, it, he does encourage almost like improvisation, which is that you know, the sense of the moment should be absolutely happening there and there, as opposed to becoming sort of saying just sort of saying things that you have to say. Uh, and I'm not sure that um, 
Yeah, David and Griffin jokingly said, uh, at least I think they were joking, uh, said that they'd improvised the whole lot, every every line in the film. An American Werewolf in Paris, the, the sequel. I'd heard a rumour that about the same time that that film went into production, that John Landis himself was attempting to get his own sequel made that included your character, Nurse Price. What did you know about that? Uh, it was talked about. I, it, it, in truth, I didn't think he ever, when he wrote American Werewolf, he didn't think of it in terms of, of it having an ongoing story. He wrote it as a complete piece. Clearly, any film company that makes a film is always going to talk about sequels, you know, particularly if they see something as being successful, or was successful. But so I'm not really quite sure what, what Landis's plans were to make another one. Um, I'm frankly not sure, you know, I don't know what they were. Um, the American World in Paris came was a completely separate story oh, for me werewolf in paris was a, a it was a very poor sequel when when compared with the quality of the original well it's, it's it's using it's using a theme and i think that that does happen and lots of ways you know people use a theme but it, it hasn't got the same ingredients no no it certainly hasn't i mean it it doesn't have you for a start um yeah well i uh, you know it's such a strange combination i mean i mean i'd be very unhappy to make anything like that without landis directing uh, on on the feature commentary of the DVD uh, for American Werewolf in London, Griffin Dunn talked about how they were having problems with American work visas, including his. Yeah, he talked about moving the whole thing. He said it could have actually... I wonder how it would have worked in Paris. I, mean, I guess there are places to go to. It would be quite the malls, but they do have some very wild landscapes. Um, yeah, I wouldn't go to the south. Um, and I think, it would, he, you know, if he, 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 I didn't think it was just an empty threat. I, mean, I think he really found it a problem because he was not going to to try to make um, two English guys seem American because the whole point of it was to have two really American boys to set up the whole English thing. Can you tell me what research you had to do for the role of Nurse Price in American Werewolf? Um, I don't know that a lot of research was required. However, I did do some. I mean, looking back at I don't know. I mean, whether it was necessary. I went and worked for a week, you know, in a voluntary way in a hospital, just to spend some time with the nurses. And I did find out quite a lot about them. I, uh, and it was fascinating. I mean, anyway, it was fascinating. Um, but it said me things like, I didn't want to be permanent with a clipboard in my hand, not, do, do you know, and not really knowing yeah. what one was going to be doing with a clipboard or whether you would indeed be doing that and what they were like and how they walked across the wards and what their attitudes were and where they were going to in between times, you know. Uh, and so I did find out quite a lot about all that, so at least I could follow it in my mind. But, uh, you know, he, he, he wrote um, A Good Relationship, which is really sort of what that's about, that uh, very straightforward uh, young woman who is very sure of herself and, uh, and meets a young man who needs some taken care of. <laughs> Here's a difficult question. Uh, most horror movies, particularly horror comedies, never seem to strike the right balance between horror and comedy and, and often fail at both. Uh, 
Why do you think American Werewolf got it so right? Why, why was it so successful when most other horror films of the same genre failed? It wasn't being frightening for its own sake. So you start off with a good story, with real characters that people identify with, um, because you sort of recognise them. And it's sort of every man being in a bizarre situation, which is werewolves don't exist, except in this... They do. We're not being spooked by, by shadows and ghosts and things. We're saying there's someone who is undead and that there is a werewolf. And this guy goes to werewolf. Um, so that's both funny, frightening, but it makes you uh, identify as, as real people with circumstance. Um, I think it's energy, uh, it's use of um, music and sound. Extremely well edited, and it had extraordinary effects. I mean, even today, with all the changes that have been in special effects, um, what Rick Baker did um, with John Landis to create you know, the, the change into the werewolf is extraordinary. Yes, yeah, so much better than the effects in Werewolf in Paris. I didn't have that kind of CGI stuff. Yeah. I mean, everybody today presumes everything's going to be computerized. But unless it was it was created in front of your eyes, and everybody did the work on it a long time. But uh, was, uh, I mean, I think that's part of the fascination of the film. But I, it, it, it is that thing. I, I think the main thing is the identification and uh, sense of story and, and the comic a- aspects of it. Story well told. He, 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 also, if someone, I, the things that I've done that have totally then remembers and come back and they've always started with the same kind of energy. They've always started with someone saying, I have to make this film. I am going to make this film, whatever the odds. And the three people said that. Nicholas Rowe, who we went to a media walk about, he said, I'm going to make this film. I don't care whether it's a handheld camera. And I met him at Blas when I was 14. It was a long time before he actually had a Um But he was totally dedicated. He was fully together. He really thought about that film before making it. It wasn't on the wing. Um, it's a very clever script. It's a very well written script as well. Blaine Jeffries, who was clearly so determined that he was going to have certain ingredients, he was going to put that film together. He was totally clear-headed about it, and he knew what that story was. And again, he'd done a very good script. Right? And with John Landis, he wanted, he wrote that story when he was 19. He was determined he was going to make that film. And he talked about it you know, years before. And I, so incidentally, how how did you meet John Landis? Um, through an actor friend, and uh, I met he and his wife Deborah, and the the two of them were young people in Hollywood, uh, and uh, both uh, very very bright, really interested in John's real movie part. Really knows everything. Yeah, and it really shows through in his films as well. Yeah, yeah because if you, if you know yourself about movies, you can see all sorts of references to films. Um, and uh, and uh, they became good friends, so great people. Oh, speaking of Rick Baker and the, the Oscar winning special effects for David's transformation sequence, how pleased were you that you didn't have to go through a werewolf transformation sequence like that? Very, very pleased. I was also very pleased not to be Griffin Dunn. 
come in and have my makeup done at you know, 5.30 in the morning for three hours to look as hideous. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, that's, uh, I would, I guess, you know, maybe werewolf would have been better than being a Griffith's job, because that was an everyday job. Uh, whereas, um, you know, there's only one transformation. I guess it is quite interesting to do. But I think it's really hard work. And I think Michael Jackson voluntarily did both the werewolf transformation sequence and sported the zombie makeup in John Landis's thriller. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. But he's gone through all sorts of transformations as well, anyway. Uh, David Norton, in the feature commentary, mentioned how he'd seen you perform in a play before you acted together in American Werewolf and that he'd had a massive crush on you before meeting you in person uh, and acting together. Were you aware of this at the time? His memory fails him slightly. <laughs> he did see me in the theatre play, which was Equus, but I actually played in the, in the movie. So what he actually saw was the, what he remembers as the film, which was very theatrically shot. I see. So how did it make you feel when you were acting alongside him when he had a massive crush on you? I, he never told me that. He never told you that? Really? No. He, he says he did. No, it, no, he, he says he told me. Yeah, he, he says he told you. I don't remember him saying that. Maybe my memory is playing him. So relax. He had a he had a couple of beers before we did the um, scene in bed together. Uh, As do all men, I think. <laughs> um, because it's never racking to me from getting my because it's sort of highly technical to do with placing the camera and having the whole camera team around you, feeling extremely awkward, trying to make something look very seductive and uh, relaxed, which it isn't. But uh, no, he's good fun. I mean, you spend you know a lot of time together, and anything that's said like that is taken with a pinch of salt. You've played a lot of different roles over the years, including some very strong female characters. But how well do you think the role of Alex in American Werewolf was written? Yes, she's actually very well written, uh, and that really is what was appealing. You know, if I had any worries about whether it would work or it wouldn't work, you then look and say, because uh, it hadn't been performed, it hadn't been really done. Um, you then would say, well, this is a character that's, that's worth playing. And uh, really, it's a good character. Um, very well fleshed out and totally made sense. And yes, her judgment of men may have been a little bit skew-worth. There's an awful lot of people that get taken in by um, men that they think are one way they turn out to be another. So, so uh, it's not you know, it's not hard hard reach that. And I did ask well, um, Landis at the end. So who am I? Speaking to men, I say I love you at the end. I mean, am I talking to the wall? I mean, yeah. And John said, no, 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 you just you're, you're talking to David, so you're just looking at me. And of course, the way it's cut together is I look down there, and he's, he's transformed, and he's the wolf. So I go, I love you, and this creature goes, because <laughs> <laughs> I'm totally sincere. It to a wolf. Yeah, and I was really expecting a happy ending at that point. Yeah, I know. It's, 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 it is extraordinary that you manage to do that. It isn't. It really isn't. And it just goes. And just, that's it. They shoot it. And then the joyful music kicks in. And the... Uh, David Norton also mentioned on the commentary that they were, they were disappointed with the film's reaction from the critics, especially from the New York Times. What memories do you have from the, the press reactions to American Werewolf? I remember them being fairly um, favourable, actually. I don't know that, uh, that, they, that they were bad. Uh, Norton may have expected... I don't know whether he, he just felt people didn't 
didn't appreciate enough what went behind making it, you know, and the creation of the characters and all the rest of it. But I thought that, uh, I don't know, I mean, I don't know, to tell the truth, I, I don't, I don't actually involve myself a huge amount in reading criticisms because I've done both theatre and film and the fact is, if you start believing, if you start reading things and they're good reviews, you, you believe that and you're lost. And then you read bad reviews, and you think that's true, and you read that, and you're lost. So you, you know, you, you take it with But my impression was that that it generally was quite was liked by the journalists and the, and the writers. Um, there may well have been people that were played it, but I don't. You know, certainly went bad. I don't think you know Landis um, has a reputation as a commercial filmmaker, and that's always hard for filmmakers not to be taken seriously. In many ways, there are quite serious aspects to it. As a film, as a filmically how it is made, um, American Werewolf is very quite interesting. But it, you know, always those things play out in the long run. Walkabout did not have good reviews when it came out. They didn't know what they were reviewing. And in fact, I think it was Candy who rewrote his review and actually wrote a piece saying, that he wanted to re-review it and talk about it six months or a year later. Um, didn't help at the time, but um, you know, some people said startling is talking about other people. Could, didn't get it, didn't know what was going on at all. The time term in those things, yeah. which is the fact if something remains for whatever reasons, people re revisit, rewrite, talk about whatever, and it gets a lot different. American World stuff is a classic. Uh, you're in good company there. Is that there's a history of great films getting bad reviews when they first came out, as the critics just just didn't understand them. Films such as Psycho and Blade Runner, for example. Yeah, that's right. I mean, people really didn't like um, Psycho. That's right. Yeah, so I mean, you know, you can't tell time tells whether a film works or doesn't really work. What in your your career do you consider the highlight or the the work that you're most proud of? Sweet William was a wonderful thing to do. Um, so it was well, Bainbridge story. It was, it was a you know, great opportunity to play somebody who had all these peculiar aspects to her personality, which one could find and play. And that was a, you know, she had a very odd relationship with somebody who, like her own werewolf, didn't quite reveal who they were. There was an awful lot of discoveries going on about the layers to which. You know, Relationship with this man she was with had with <laughs> and it's very because it's very Belle Bainbridge which is very funny and it was great it was great to do uh, and then there are things that I've done on stage that I really enjoyed doing like Reagan and King Lear because she was thoroughly thoroughly dark and bad and there is something fascinating about looking at those aspects and, and playing them as a as a person and at the same time, I did a play called Arden of Pavishan, which is about a, a woman, um, contemporary Shakespeare, so it's a similar time, but I mean, you, you sort of can take these people out of the theory as well, who had eight attempts at murdering her husband. Not very nice. Um, but again, fascinating to play. Clearly, someone who was driven. And now I guess you probably know what I was talking about if I were to say the words, see you next Wednesday. Yes. 
was always there. And it's been, I think he's had his own films. Well. Yeah, he's, he's included it in a lot of his films. Yeah. Including Michael Jackson's Thriller video. He's just moved by it. Blues Brothers as well. He, he stopped doing it now, though. Yeah, people started spotting it far too easily. Try to put it in very, very subtle ways. That Hitchcock shadow. Now, I know, I know photography is a huge passion of yours, and, and you've published your own photography book called Snap. Do you have any plans to publish any more of your photography? Um, I did have, but I actually haven't had a camera, apart from an automatic in my hand for a while. I take a lot of kind of easy advantage like shots. Um, shots that I haven't uh, used No plans for the future? Maybe. I mean, I, I love getting involved in things that are on the other side of the camera, but it's still camera or in production. So, a classic interview question coming up. Uh, apologies in advance for this one. What has been the greatest challenge in your life so far, either personal or professional? Um, the biggest change in my life is, is getting married because it uh, requires a huge change in, in oneself, um, you know, particularly. I uh, thought of myself as a completely independent person up to the age of 37, leading my life absolutely as I wanted to do it, and being accused of actually being very selfish because I just did whatever I wanted to do. Wanted to do. And then one is blessed with the possibility of having somebody else in life um, and accommodating that is both enormous joy and an enormous challenge. Um, it does make you realise that the way you want to do something isn't necessarily the only way to do it. <laughs> you may end up thinking that it's the only right way to do it, but um, <laughs> your, your challenge is to how you then So it's it's um, it's it's the pleasure of finding out all the ways of, of accommodating someone in one's life, and uh, I guess it has been. So learning to make compromises. Yeah, it's, it's, it's funny. You don't sort of see it as compromise when you do it because it's not. It's really not compromising because you have to be, you end up kind of getting involved wholeheartedly. You just find out that there are other ways and you just have to drop the self thing about being absolutely sure that you're determined to be the one way. It's not compromising, not saying, okay, well, um, I didn't really like to do that, but I will do it because. It's actually going, well, I would do that this way. Or um, I wouldn't, uh, you know, well, it, it's also the joy of someone bringing something completely different into your life. You know? uh, I remember getting to New York, New York one time, and six o'clock, it's already, you know, so it's like grab the clock all the time. My husband says, we could go to the opera. And I go, yes, but we could rest. And that's a really good idea. He says, it's a good idea. That's why we'll go to the opera. <laughs> and it was, makes me laugh. It's completely insane. And it's nothing I would ever think of doing. So you get to do some things that you wouldn't normally do. Now, you've appeared in one of my all-time favourite comedies, Red Dwarf. What was it about the script for Red Dwarf that made you want to do that show? I think it was just, it's, it, it, it's just a very, very funny idea. Um, it was a very funny script. 
uh, and it was, you know, it was good fun to do something that's already a huge, had a huge cult following. Do you receive a lot of requests to appear in comedy like that? Well, <clears throat> Dilette Sale, the Red Dwarf, um, I played a role in Darkman, which is kind of dark comedy, I guess, it's comical. Um, and I do like those things, yes. And Patrol, uh, Parole Office, just recently, Steve Gooden movie. Um, I do like comedy. Uh, it's easier to do on stage when you're working with an audience because you know whether it works or it doesn't work. And when you're in a film, it's kind of always going to try to look, you know, is that funny? Because nobody's laughing because everybody's either pretending to lights or they're just being quiet because they're like, so you just don't know. You have no way of knowing if it's funny. You know it's funny in your own head. You're not quite sure what they're going to see. So it is difficult sometimes, but I, I, I like comedy. I like going to comedy. I'm doing something about MI5 at the moment, which is called Spooks. Yeah. Um, I'm playing some stuff with them. That's great fun. I've been doing that peculiar world of espionage, albeit home-based, where uh, people are uh, living life that is Now, you've recently settled here in London after living abroad. Is there anything you miss that you can't get in London, such as well, the weather would be the obvious one? I just, this time of year, I've had some today, but, you know, I just find the winters really hard to get through. And it's just long winters. Do I miss, do I, that I miss about it? That, that's about the end. I mean, because I, my, my friends, I can see, I can see over here as well. Um, and there's not a society that I'm not. I'm not one for missing things very much actually, because I've travelled a lot as a child, uh, and if I want to be somewhere, I'll be there. Um, but, but, you know, Britain occupies so much of my my time with family and um, projects and things that I want to be involved in. And with that, once one has a family, then you're more socially involved, which I really wasn't in any at all. It's just the world. I think it's very quite hard to have a good social setup. Reflecting on the way one feels about things in Los Angeles. So, no, I don't really miss anything from that point of view, you know, the comforts and everything. I do like, well, I, do, I do like swimming and I do like getting the ocean, I do like the sunshine because I was brought up with it. And I sometimes feel the more necessary. But then, you, then I, I get such a kick out of London. And I just think it's, it's such an exciting city. There's so much going on all the time. There's music, mind theatre, theatre. Um, all sorts of events, um, great places to go and eat, great places to for art. I mean, just anything you could want. So, I wish I didn't get an memory, actually. You, know, you look for it, and you sort of create it. Now, here's a loaded question to finish off with. What's the best Christmas present you've ever received? He asks, knowing you had your son on December 25th. And what's the best thing for Christmas for my son? <laughs> it would be hard not to. That was a very low It is a very, very, you know, it is a very extraordinary thing. And we wasn't expected on Christmas Day, I think, because we were supposed to be on the 28th of January. So it was quite a, it was a, it was a, it was a 
quite a shock. Thank you so much for answering my questions, Jenny. Uh, and and for putting up with my fangirl moments over American Werewolf. It's been an, an absolute pleasure speaking with you. I've enjoyed every second of it. And and to our listeners, if you've also enjoyed this interview with Jenny Agata, please consider subscribing to this podcast and leaving me a glowing five-star review. I would certainly appreciate it. You've been listening to the Engaging Marketeer podcast. Until next time. Oh, oh, oh.